Reading from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So far God's word. Uh, keep them close. We can work our way then uh, through this story together and pick up on all the details uh, that are recorded here for us uh, to teach us of God uh, and of his great work. There's also sermon uh, outlines if you want to follow along and or take notes. Uh, so you can make use of those if you haven't got one. There should be some still left in the foyer. Uh, my first driving test when I went to get my peas many years ago was a disaster, an absolute tragedy. Uh, I was nervous. I was the first in my family to take that test, so there was pressure to, you know, set a good example for my siblings. Uh, I was the last of my friends, so there was pressure to to catch up uh, and also be self-mobile. We're also going uh, camping the afternoon after my test, and if I got my, uh, my P's, I'd be able to drive my car camping. If I failed, I had to take my motorbike which being a trail bike was very uncomfortable. I didn't want to do that. There was also a very notorious driving instructor in Launceston at the time. We called him Mullet Man. And you'll never guess why. (laughs) He had a... It wasn't glorious. It was a hideous mullet. It was long and greasy. But he had a reputation for failing guys every single time, their first driving test. No guy had ever passed with him on their first time. Now, I thought I was in the clear because he'd been on holidays. And so you can imagine my horror when I arrived at Service Tasmania and there he was standing outside in all his mullety glory waiting for me. Well, the test was a complete train wreck. I managed to stall coming out of Service Tasmania, got off to a great start. I missed a turn-off that he told me to take. I failed to look into a lane before moving there. I failed to indicate at a number of corners 
And when it came to parking at Kmart, I chose a minuscule parking space, missed it and he had to hit the brakes. I comprehensively failed. Uh, Seven out of ten criteria from memory I failed, including all the compulsory ones. The only thing I did well was reverse park and I nailed that. (laughs) But a month later it was time to. This time I had a different instructor. I was driving a different car, a more familiar car. I had practised very hard, I had a little more experience, I knew what to expect and I nailed it. 10 out of 10, I was stoked. I'd learned a lot. Uh, that, that second experience was a very different experience because I had come a long way and had a lot of ex- uh, learned a lot through it. Now, the first time God sent Jonah to Nineveh, we've seen it was a train wreck. <laughs> it was a disaster. He didn't get there. In fact, he went miles the other way. He ran, there was a storm, there was a fish. Nothing went right for Jonah. But he did live. So I guess he's got that going for him. Now it's a second time. God's come to him and he's sent him again. And we're waiting here with bated breath. What's going to happen? How's it going to turn out? Is it going to be even worse than the first time? What's it going to be? Has Jonah learned anything from his experience? But actually that question turns back on us, doesn't it? What have we learned from Jonah's experience? What's changed in our knowledge of God from this story? Have we picked up on enough to know what's coming here in this story? See, really, Act 2 of Jonah, chapters 3 and 4, are a test, not only for Jonah himself, but really for us, to see if we've grown, if we've come to know God better, and if we can understand how he works. So we're going to go through this passage and we're going to get this test from Jonah. Firstly, the reluctant messenger. Uh, History really repeats itself for Jonah. We don't know how much time uh, elapsed between him being vomited by a fish and then sent to Nineveh again. We're not told. But what we are told is that Jonah gets called by God in exactly the same manner as before. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. Uh, In my Bible, chapter 1 and chapter 3 are on the same page and when you look at them next to each other, they're almost identical. Okay, there's a few small differences, but it is almost exactly the same. Get up and go to that great city of Nineveh. Tell them the message that I'm giving to you. And just like chapter 1, Jonah gets up and he goes, thankfully, finally, to Nineveh. So far, so good. We're heading in the right direction. But now we start to learn a bit about Nineveh. Look at verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. It's kind of an unusual phrase there. Where we're not really sure what, what it means by a visit required three days. That it was a big city, that's undebated. But is it, does it mean that you know, it took three days to see everything in Nineveh? Does it mean it took three days to go around it or through it or from the outskirts to the centre? We're not really sure. Uh, I tend to think it's the latter, that it took three days to get from the outside to the very heart of this city. It was that big, a huge place. 
Keeping that in mind, it makes Jonah's efforts look pretty unimpressive, doesn't it? Look at verse 4. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Takes three days to get into this city. Jonah goes one. And then he proclaims his message. It's not much of a message, is it? It's eight words in English. It's five words in Hebrew. It's about the shortest sermon ever preached. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. None of the usual stuff that prophets talk about. No, this is the word of Yahweh. No, Nineveh is going to be overthrown, so repent. He doesn't even tell them why Nineveh is going to be overthrown. He doesn't give them any reason whatsoever. This is as stripped back a sermon as you could possibly get. It is bare bones less than even. (laughs) And what's more, we actually get a hint in this story that Jonah only delivers it once. He kind of walks some of the way into the city, gives his sermon, turns around and goes the other way. I mean, it's, it's unimpressive, isn't it? It's absolutely bizarre. And yet it's consistent with what we've seen of Jonah, isn't it? This is kind of the Jonah we've seen already and it's certainly the Jonah we're going to see next week in chapter 4. But how sad. Uh, If you were here last week, you remember the end of of Jonah's uh, song, of his prayer from the fish. It it, it promised so much. It promised that he'd repented, he he was vowing to God, he was making promises. But now his actions fall so far short of what he'd said. But here's the question. Was God surprised by that? Did God sit back and think, whoa, did not see that coming, that was not what I had in mind? (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) God knew what was coming, God knew Jonah's heart even. And yet, he sent him anyway. He sent him a second time, knowing what would happen. And in doing so, we learn something very profound about God, don't we? Uh, We don't live in a fix-it age, do we? Uh, Something breaks in our households, what do we do? Well, we replace it. We we actually expect things to break. They're, They're kind of built to break nowadays. And when it happens, we don't fix, we just replace. I was meant to bring my hammer in, I forgot it. Many of you will have seen my bent hammer before. My super cheap auto hammer, which explains how it got that way. It doesn't work well. If you've ever tried to use a hammer with a bent head, it doesn't work. It's very hard to do something with it. But I'm not going to fix that hammer. I can't be bothered. I don't even know how. I don't think it's possible. But what's more is I can replace it. I could go, I don't even have to go to super cheap order, I can go to Bunnings actually. (laughs) And there I have a range of hundreds of different hammers from a couple of bucks through to, I don't know, hundreds maybe? Hammers get expensive, I guess. See, that's the thing, I don't even have to buy the same one, I could buy a better one. How good is that? Actually, don't tell Melinda, I sometimes like it when things break because I get to replace them with better things. (laughs) You didn't hear that. See, we are not fixers, are we? We're used to throwing things out and replacing them with new ones, but God is. God is a fixer. God uses bent and broken tools and not only does he use them to, to strike a straight blow with a crooked stick, but he actually fixes his bent and broken tools. He, re- he remakes them, he restores them, he repairs them and in that process he actually improves them as well. 
See, I am certain that God had other prophets he could have sent to Nineveh. He, he had a whole nation he could have called on to send them there and no doubt there would have been better, more reliable people that he could have sent to that city. But he didn't. He sent Jonah. He sent him a second time to do the work God had sent him, flawed though he was. See, God fulfilled his purposes through Jonah despite all of his shortcomings because God was the person, uh, Jonah was the person to whom God had given this work. Now, of course, he didn't leave Jonah bent and broken. Uh, he's been working on him for two chapters in this story. He's going to do a lot more next week as well. Last week it was a fish. Next week it's a plant and a worm. But God still uses his broken servants and he improves them. He changes them. And that is how God works. He doesn't discard broken and bent tools. He persists in them and he does so to his own glory. See, God does amazing things through, through bent and twisted and ordinary people all the time so that in that work people will see him and will praise him and will give him glory. God does that work in you. Weak, sinful, faltering, afraid though we are, God does that work in us. He restores us, he refines us, he uses us for the task that he's set us. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is his promise to his people in 2 Corinthians. See, weaknesses we have a plenty. But God's grace we have so much more. That's amazing, isn't it? God doesn't look at us when we fall short. God doesn't look at us when we fail yet again and say, oh, these guys are hopeless. Just going to do it myself. That's not how he works. He doesn't think like that. See, we would fire employees who are as wayward as we are. But God doesn't. God works through us. He persists in us, flawed though we are. And he achieves what he wants to do. Now, of course, <laughs> that's no excuse for us to be content with mediocrity. Now, this isn't an excuse to say, well, you know, I'm flawed, but so be it, that's okay. No, God expects us to change. God expects us to grow and he works to that end. He'll do it with our co cooperation, which is usually the smoother path. He'll do it without our cooperation, which tends to be quite a bit harder. Just ask Jonah. God uses broken people but he doesn't leave us broken. He works in us. He fixes us. He improves us. You are his servant and he has work set for you. Can't do it, not for me. Those aren't excuses because God persists. Now I'm sure some roles are not for all of us but the core task that God has set us of loving people, serving people, speaking his word, taking his word to the world, those tasks are for all of us, regardless of who we are, regardless of where we are. Now I know you don't feel up to it always and I can relate. There are many times where I too feel inadequate for this task. Just ask Melinda, she cops the brunt of it all the time. But that's the thing. That is exactly the sort of person that God works through someone who knows that they're not up to it because he's at work 
He uses us, he uses all of us. Bent, broken, flawed, fearful though we are. He strikes straight blows with crooked sticks. How clearly do we see that in Jonah? God's servant here puts in the most average of effort. If he was playing sport, he would be benched. That's it. It's average. It's terrible. But God does something amazing. (laughs) This five-word sermon he delivers sets the city alight. It is astonishing. Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. See, this word spreads like wildfire through this city, from person to person to person, all the way through the city, even to the very top, to the king. And the reaction is astonishing. You know, this is a harsh message that Jonah's brought, but the city doesn't react with anger, they don't react with hatred against Jonah, they repent. Isn't that remarkable? Uh, We're told there at the start of verse 5, the Ninevites believed. That word there is so strong. Uh, Previously it's used of Abraham, of Moses, of Samuel, of David, you know, the, 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 the great fathers of the Israelite faith and now of pagan Nineveh, of all people. And that belief is true because it drives them to action. They, they, they react with utter humility, with fasting and weeping and putting on of sackcloth. And that moves even to the king. Look at verses 6 to 8. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. See, you, you kind of expect news like this, such an uproar to come to the king and him be like, we have to squash it. We, ha- we have to put a lid on this. But that's the exact opposite to what he does. Rather than quelling this religious uproar, he actually escalates it. He takes it to a whole new level. No man, no animal is to eat or drink anything. Instead, all are to call on God and turn from their evil and seek peace. <laughs> just, just trying to picture this. You know, we're talking a city of hundreds of thousands of people. You know, forget Launceston, think, think Hobart. <laughs> Vast metropolis that it is. Just imagine if this happened there and every person in the city by, by, by uh, rule of Ron Christie says, starts to mourn and puts on sackcloth and what's more, they do it to their pets as well. I mean, there's no cows in, in Hobart probably but they, they, they put sackcloth on their pets. They fast, they withhold food. It, it's absolute chaos, isn't it? Hundreds of thousands mourning, wailing, uh, fasting entirely. I mean, you go and listen to a paddock of cows that hasn't been fed for a morning. Imagine that for a couple of days. It is deafening. There's utter chaos. And see, what's what's remarkably ironic here is Jonah's message actually came true. He doesn't believe it himself, but it happened. He said, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Now, usually that word means destruction. It means utter destruction for a city. But sometimes, sometimes it can also mean repentance. And isn't that what happened? Jonah was hoping for the former. God works the latter. Nineveh is utterly overthrown in repentance, in a remarkable turn to God. 
And see, what's more, they did it all in hope. I don't know if you noticed that. There's no promise in Jonah's message. Look what the king says in verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with his compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. See, they weren't even sure that God would hear. They had no certainty about whether God would respond. And yet they still repented. In hope, they threw themselves before God that maybe he would show mercy. Now, some people will try to tell you that Nineveh was pre-prepared for all of this. There is some evidence that at the time Nineveh had a particularly weak king, uh, there was border troubles, there was a solar eclipse around this time and an earthquake as well uh, and, and they'll tell you that well, actually it was all of that that prompted Nineveh's radical response. But it's rubbish. <laughs> the narrator doesn't want you to have a single part of that. There, there's no hint of a cause here, is there? What he focuses on 100% is just one thing that caused this uproar and it's God's word. There's nothing else here. It is simply God's word. It is God's message, short though it was. It is this powerful that it turns a city upside down. There's a great uh, Paul Kelly song. All Paul Kelly songs are great. uh, But this one uh, describes this phenomenon. You, You might not know the song but you'll probably know the chorus. From little things, big things grow. It's a cracking song. Uh, It's a song about a story of exactly that. From little things, from one uh, Aboriginal man in uh, outback Australia from a remote area, grew enormous things. A whole rights movement and land return. Uh, It's a story of Vincent Lingari. Go and listen to the song. It's fantastic. But how much better does that chorus describe what happens here? From little things, big things grow. From a five-word sermon... (laughs) grows an enormous movement that engulfs a whole city that turns hundreds of thousands of people to repentance and mourning and back to God. And that is how God's word works. The little thing though it seems to be, big things it does. It is that powerful. It is that effective. I mean too often we we think that was then, this is now. It doesn't work like that anymore. Things have changed. It can't happen again. But why not? Why couldn't it? I mean, has, has God's word changed? Is God's means changed? Well, of course not. They're both the same, are they? Could God's word work powerfully today? Well, of course it can. And it does. It does. See, God's word is still doing amazing things across the world. It is doing amazing things in our own community, let alone our own church. Sometimes big, visible things. You know, we see revivals, we see movements around the world. We, we see you know, the centre of the church at the moment pivoting from uh, its, its traditional place in Western, uh, Western culture to, to pivoting to Africa. You know, all those years of sending missionaries has worked and the church there is big and it's strong. Don't, I mean, don't just look there, look at China, look at North Korea, look at places around the world. The Word is doing amazing things. But not only big and visible things, but, but big and invisible things as well. Hearts and lives being changed, churches being planted, lives being turned around, people coming to faith. I mean, we, we, we see it here in our own church, don't we? I see it talking to you regularly. 
People changing, hearts being made new. How? By God's word and by nothing more. See, God's word is immensely powerful. It changes lives, it changes hearts. It convicts, it transforms. So trust it. Trust it because it is powerful. Trust it in your own life. And all of us want to change. All of us want to be better people, to grow in self-control, to, to be less uh, driven to sin. God's word can do that. I mean, technique, self-control, strategy by itself is inadequate. <laughs> but God's word isn't. God's word transforms, it makes new. So pick it up. I mean, we, we wonder why we don't change, but we're not reading the word as much as we ought to. Ask, I mean, ask yourself the question, how can I get more of the word in my life? What do I need to do? You know, maybe it's setting aside 20 minutes in the morning, maybe 20 minutes in the evening if that works better. Maybe it's getting a Bible reading plan app on your phone. No, they're simple, there's, there's dozens to choose from, they're free. Maybe it's streaming sermons when you're driving in the car. Maybe it's just meeting up with someone else to read the Bible and be accountable with them. It's that easy. Trust it. It's powerful. Trust it when you're speaking with others. I mean, we think, don't we? You know, people don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear from us. And we're probably right. <laughs> but neither did Nineveh. And look what happened there. See, God's word works, doesn't it? It's a sword, it cuts, it heals, it divides deep, it slices out death, it brings life again. Trust it. Every person who has ever come to faith in the world throughout history, billions of people, including those here, you've come by, uh, by the word. It's not by, by some great speaker, it's not by having grown up in the church, it's by the power of the word. And it can do it again. Trust it. Speak it, love it and God will work through it. Not by your strength, not by the experience of you as a witness but by the sheer power of that word. God's word always achieves God's purposes even in his weak and broken servants, even in you and even in me. It never returns to him empty-handed it's never spoken in vain. We may not see the results, but whether we do or not, it works and it does exactly what God intends for it to do. All we need to do is trust it, use it and speak it. Now so far we've looked at two of the actors in this story. We've seen Jonah, we've seen the Ninevites and we've seen that through their parts in this story, God is working in the background but when we reach verse 10, God steps out of the background and he takes centre stage. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. See, God sees what happened in Nineveh. He sees their response, he sees their repentance and he relents. He, he turns back from the disaster he had threatened, he averts it and they are safe. It's wonderful stuff. But it is tricky too, isn't it? Is God changing here? Is God going back 
on what he'd said? Oh, that's, that's a hard question, isn't it? It seems to contradict what we know of God. Now, the full answer I won't give you because it takes up lots and lots of books, but we can say a few things here. The first thing we can say is God is actually acting consistently with his character. We've seen it through the whole book, haven't we? God is merciful. And that's what we see here. He shows mercy upon this city who's repented. God's not changed. He's not somehow different from what he was in chapter 1. He's merciful, as we've come to expect. Well then, what about his word? Is is God contradicting what he said? Is he going back on what he, he threatened? Well, the answer is no. See, what Jonah brought to Nineveh was prophecy. And one thing we don't often realise about prophecy is that it's so often conditional. Not always, but often it's conditional. See, Jonah understood that. That's why he he didn't want to go to Nineveh and tell them of judgement because he knew that that wasn't certain, that there was a chance they'd respond and receive mercy. So this is what God says about his prophetic word. He says it in Jeremiah chapter 18. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down or destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So the point is, God doesn't punish those who don't deserve it. Neither does he build up those who don't deserve it. Through it all, God is constant and always merciful. Now it's hard for us to understand, isn't it? I mean, just imagine the outrage if if this week... Uh, a judge in the States releases notorious uh, death row convicted murderer because he'd repented. It it would be scandalous, wouldn't it? it? It would be utterly horrific. But it wouldn't be if God did the same, would it? Because God knows hearts. He sees hearts and he acts justly and mercifully. I mean, wouldn't it be more unjust, more unfair for him to punish someone who had truly repented. Wouldn't that be more unfair? God always does what is right. And miraculously, amazingly, in him, mercy and justice come together and coexist. But how? I mean, there is nothing more that we hate than seeing someone who deserves punishment get off scot-free. I mean, this, this, just this week past, the, the guy up the coast kills the penguins, he gets just a few hours of community service and an $82 fine. And it's, uh, it's up, uproar, it's outrageous, isn't it? What, what a pathetic penalty. Is that justice? Well, God loves justice even more than we do. And he never lets sin slide. So here is what God says. God presented him, that is Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement, that is, a sacrifice taking wrath through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had let the sins committed beforehand go unpunished. See, God is just and therefore all sins, past and future, get their full 
and right punishment. Everything that they, they, they deserved. He doesn't forget them, he doesn't put them aside, he doesn't just leave them be. Instead he's saying he forbeared with them. He, he, he didn't punish immediately, he saved all that punishment, he gathered it up, both past, both future, and then he completely followed through with it all on Jesus, on the cross. And there his justice was fully satisfied because there the full deserved punishment of all sin, all sin that's been, all sin that will come, was thrown onto Christ and was paid entirely. Why? So that by his mercy you could go free. By his mercy the justice for your sins had been paid. In Jesus, mercy for sinners, justice for sin, come together and we go free. We get life. And through it all, God is unchanged. As we sung earlier, forever. Forever the same. Perfectly merciful. Perfectly just. Acting just as he said he would. And that is our hope. That is the confidence for all those who have repented of their sins. Here's what Romans 8 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No mud sticks, no penalty remains, no punishment is unpaid, not now, not forever to come. All of it has been taken in the past. It's gone, it's dealt with. I know we've talked about this before, but it is so vital that we come to understand this. We, just, we cannot move past this without getting it because to understand this is to be freed, to live the, the joyful, the full life that Jesus came to give us. Uh, for so many years I didn't understand this. I know some of you are in the same boat, just couldn't get this and it would literally keep me awake at night. Uh, I, I would lie there at night haunted, worrying, Was there a sin that I had somehow forgotten? Was there something that I hadn't confessed to God that that was still hanging over me? Something I did today, something I've done in the past and it terrified me. The thought that that I'd missed something and that that night maybe Jesus would come back and I would be left with something held against me and the gates of heaven would be locked against me. Do you know how paralysing that was? Do you know how how, how joyless a Christianity that led to? I I didn't love Jesus. I I feared him. I I, I loathed him and the the thought of him coming back was, was so terrifying I never wanted it to happen. And do you know how wrong I was? Because God is just and God is merciful and therefore he can't and he won't hold those sins against me forever. I am free. There is no burden, no, no fear of wrong that I've done because I'm forgiven eternally and entirely. Once and for all. And so freed, not to fear, not, not to be terrified of that day when Christ will come again but to look forward, to love it and to now love Christ and live for him. And so too for you. 
If you put your trust in him, you will never pay for the wrong you've done because that debt is gone. You can't pay it twice. God won't demand that that's so because he is just and he is merciful to you. See, that's what the book of Jonah so desperately wants us to see. God is, God is not miserly. God is not adding up our wrongs so that one day he can, he can unleash them on us. God is merciful, infinitely so. And he loves showing mercy. <laughs> he, he's glad to show mercy even to those who don't deserve it. In mercy he allows broken people a place in his plan. In mercy he calls the rebellious sinners to repentance. In mercy he acts justly and takes the punishment for sin in Christ. In God there is mercy for you, unlimited, infinite and free. And it's yours because he delights in giving it. He loves to hand it out. So find his mercy, know his mercy, be transformed by it and be freed to live in it, rejoicing in our God who is perfect in mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your incredible mercy, a mercy so rich, so free, so infinite. Mercy that saves, a mercy that relents from punishment, a mercy that is good and just. Father, help us to know this mercy, to know this compassion, to know this love and be freed by its assurance to live the full and joyful life you have came, you have sent Jesus to give to us. Father, we thank you that not only does your mercy save, but your mercy sends that in it you use us, weak, frail, failing though we are, to take your word, your beautiful message, out into this world. Father, help us to do so. Help us to do it all the more. Not fearing, but glad. And may you do powerful work through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.